Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Jean Hannah Edelstein on her memoir... This really isn't about you. Jean Hannah Edelstein is a writer who lives in Brooklyn. She writes regularly for outlets including The Guardian and The Pool and a weekly newsletter which Vogue says pops up in your inbox like lucid dreaming. And Jean is also now the author of a memoir, This Really Isn't About You, which we're going to be talking about today. Jean, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. This memoir starts off with an epigram from Nora Ephron. Mm -hmm. And before we talk about the book, I wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. what other writers perhaps were an influence when you decided you were going to write a memoir. So many writers. I mean, I think I've been really interested in memoir for a long time. I think I remember reading David Sedaris for the first time, probably when I was about 20, and being really struck by his first book, I think it was Naked, um, in which he just wrote so beautifully about his growing up and some really painful experiences that he had as a child. And yet it's just so hilarious. And I think, I mean, actually, I think it goes back even earlier, there's a book I read when I was in high school called Mona in the Promised Land by Gish Jen, which I think sadly is out of print now. And that is, um, that's a novel. It's not nonfiction, but it's about a girl growing up in Westchester, which is a suburb sort of north of New York City. And her family is Chinese and most of the kids she goes to school with are Jewish. And it's just a very beautifully rendered story of adolescence. And I remember reading it when I was really in the throes of my own like fairly rocky adolescence and being struck by how hilarious it was and like how the author described these things, which were obviously on the one hand, very painful, but on the other hand, just very funny. And I remember thinking like, oh, maybe maybe life is pretty funny, even when it's tragic. And so I think that was the first time I kind of like grasped that idea. And then Sedaris really does it very well. And so I think that was when I sort of started looking at my own life through that kind of a filter. Other writers of memoir that I really enjoy, um, I mean, recently, I think Tara Westover's book, Educated, just really blew me away. I read it in about two days and I would be often sitting next to my husband reading away and then suddenly I'd go, oh my God. Um, I think she, you know, her story is probably more unusual than mine and that she grew up under really unique and difficult circumstances. But I think she does such an amazing job of writing about it in an empathetic and very kind of balanced kind of way. Like her story is very dramatic, but she doesn't make it too dramatic. And I think that's something that I aim to do in my writing as well, to kind of like tell things like they are and show light and dark, but not dial up the melodrama unnecessarily. 
And so literally in the first line of the book, your mm. father dies of cancer. Yes. Mm. Um, having been diagnosed with lung cancer mm. two years previously. Mm. Tell us about him. Well, yeah, my father was a pretty extraordinary man. And I think anyone who loves their father can say that about their father. And I think that's kind of an important thing about him is on the one hand, he did have a very unusual career. He was a physicist. He ended up working in medical physics. And specifically, he was one of the early inventors of MRI. So along with a team in Aberdeen in Scotland, he built the first full body MRI scanner. But he was actually very humble about it. So I knew that he worked at MRI for most of his career. And it was not until he came back to Aberdeen for the 25th anniversary of the scanner. And I knew that he and my mom were coming over for the 25th anniversary of something. So I like went up to see them and I was like, what are you celebrating? And he said, oh, you know, the time that we built the first full body MRI scanner. <laughs> and I said, no, I didn't know that actually, dad. And then I said, is the first patient here? And he said, oh, no, we, we chose someone who was definitely going to die because we, we couldn't be sure what would happen. So anyway, that was, you know, on the one hand, he had this really extraordinary career. On the other hand... He was just very, very devoted to his family. Like, and he was someone who he worked a lot, but he would come home every night for dinner and help my mom put us to bed. And then he'd often go back to his lab. I don't know until what hour, you know, spent a lot of time with us on the weekends. He was just very engaged. Um, another story I really love about him is that he used to apparently, one of his colleagues told me this after he died, that he would go to conferences for MRI physicists and scientists and doctors and go up to people who we saw maybe once a year at this conference and say to them, do you want to see some really great new images? And they'd be like, yeah, thinking they'd see a really clear picture of a brain or something. And he'd pull out photos of his kids. <laughs> so that was, you know, he was someone who, you know, was very passionate about his work and very passionate about his family. And I think that just, yeah, made him a really special person. And everyone in my family, we all, I mean, one thing I realized after he died was we all had very unique relationships with him. And so we were all grieving very deeply, but we were also kind of grieving individually and in that we were almost grieving a different person. And that I thought was kind of unusual that he was able to, I'm one of three kids and each of us had this like very unique relationship with him that was very special to us. And your mum, your mum was from Scotland. And That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, that was an interesting story. My dad um, was from a town in upstate New York called Gloversville, which is called Gloversville because they used to manufacture most of the world's gloves. <laughs> and it was populated by Jewish people from Lithuania and other, um, you know, what would now be, you know, former Soviet states who came to the U.S. around 1900. And then one family went up and started this glove factory. And then all these other people who had like experience working with leather from the old country joined them. So it was this um, sometimes known as the, the shtetl in the Adirondacks, a funny little um, hamlet of Jewish people in, you know, a quite rural part of America. So my dad grew up there. He moved to Chicago. He went to university, went to graduate school in the States. And then he used to say he wasn't a great student in graduate school. It took him nine years to get his PhD. And so at the end, he was given a choice between going to work in the bottom of a salt mine in Ohio or moving to Glasgow. And this was probably like 1974. And, yeah, his, difficult Amer choice. Yeah, and his American friends were like, don't go to Glasgow. It's really dangerous there. And my dad was just a kind of, I think I inherited this from him, slightly whimsical man. And he's like, no, I think I'm going to go to Glasgow. It seems interesting. So he went there to work on gravitational waves, actually. And that's where he met my mom. 
she is um, from Dumfries in the borders of Scotland, and then she was living in Glasgow. So they met, fell in love, got married, and moved to Aberdeen together, and then moved to back to the States, well, for my dad back, for my mom for the first time um, in late 1980, which was just before I was born. We mentioned your father has developed lung cancer, mm-hmm. but... That's as a result of something else, something called Lynch syndrome. That's correct. So Lynch syndrome is a genetic cancer syndrome. It basically means that there's a flaw in a, a cancer repair gene in your DNA. So everyone has cells that are going a bit rogue all the time. Like that's just the nature of the human body. And most people have these, you know, sort of repair cells that will swoop in and stop it from developing. Um, People with Lynch syndrome, there's something wrong with those repair cells. And so cancer develops. So that means that you have a very elevated chance of getting certain kinds of cancer, primarily colon cancer and in women, gynecological cancers. So my father didn't know that he had Lynch syndrome until he was in his 60s. His mother had died of colon cancer. Um, when he was very young, when she was 42. And she was first diagnosed with colon cancer when she, I think she was about 32. So we grew up knowing that, you know, he'd lost his mother and knowing that cancer was something that we, we sort of said broadly ran in the family, but we didn't have any knowledge of like the actual reason for it until he was in his 60s when he had a form of skin cancer, which is very typical for Lynch syndrome. And so They looked at his medical history, his mother's history, also the fact that he was Jewish because it is more common in Jewish families, and tested him for it and discovered that he had it. And so then he told me and my siblings, like, you should get tested for this too. And both of my siblings went ahead and got tested pretty quickly. I think this was about 2010. And I didn't. They were both negative, which is great. I was hesitant to get tested, I think, because, well, a few things. One, I thought that I probably had it. I sort of, you know, and it's funny because I say like, oh, I had it. I had a feeling, but it is a 50% chance. So it's kind of like when people say like, oh, I knew I was like having a boy when they're pregnant. It's like, well, okay, but like, you, you know, it's a pretty good hunch. Anyway, so I had this hunch and also my life was just very much in flux. And so I kind of felt like, you know, I was trying to figure out like what I wanted my future to be. And so I just didn't want to know. I was just not, I just wasn't ready to find out. So my dad then, he recovered the, the skin cancer was not very serious, but a couple of years later, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, he wasn't a smoker, which is a funny thing because I think when you have a relative with lung cancer, there's a an urge to say that, like, just to be clear, it wasn't his fault. But of course, like, you wouldn't wish lung cancer on anyone. And it's not like, as I say in the book, it's not like he was any better or worse than any other dad who got sick. So I think it's not entirely clear whether the lung cancer was linked to the Lynch syndrome, but it was unusual for him to fall ill with it because he didn't have any other sort of high risk factors. And certainly Lynch syndrome increases like all cancer risk, basically. And you mentioned his mother had yeah. died of mm-hmm. colon cancer, which mm-hmm. is one of the, the big common ones with Lynch. But obviously they didn't know that she had that. Was it because it wasn't it yeah, something I mean, that it, had been recognized It yet. hadn't been discovered yet, so to speak. So she died, I believe, in 1962. And I think Lynch syndrome wasn't um, named until it's named after the doctor who kind of pinpointed it. It wasn't named until a few years later. And then it was once my dad worked out that he had it, his sister found out that she had it as well. And then they sort of reflected on the family and realized their mother died so young. She had a sibling who had many forms of cancer over the years. My father's grandmother also died of cancer, although not particularly young, but like you know, it was like, oh, this isn't just like bad luck. <laughs> There's a very clear reason that it, that it keeps happening in this family. When your father was first diagnosed, you mm. were in London, living That's in right. London. Yeah. Let's mm. talk about why you were in London. 
Why was I in London? As I said, I was quite whimsical. So <laughs> because my mother is from the UK, I have the immense privilege of having two passports. So I have a British passport as well as an American passport. And I actually left the US when I was 18. I went to university in Canada. It was just around the time of George W. Bush, the beginning of the endless wars. And I think when I was coming towards the end of university, I didn't feel particularly inclined to come back to the US. Also, I had by then I had a boyfriend who was Irish and he was moving to London. And so I thought, hey, you know, I can do this. Like I have this passport, so why not? So I moved to London. I did a year in graduate school here and then I just started working. So the boyfriend and I ended up splitting up just because we were very young and neither of us really knew what we wanted in the future. And then, yeah, so I just, I sort of settled in London as much as I had settled anywhere. I think that was, I was always someone who, you know, I go into it in the book. Like I had lots of different jobs. Like I was never very, I perhaps, I wanted to be a writer, but other than that, I kind of perhaps lacked a bit of focus. And so, yeah, so I was still in London in 2010 when I got that, when my dad got his diagnosis and started suggesting that I should get checked for Lynch syndrome as well. And like part of the book, the middle section of the Mm. book details basically your life over those years, living in London, Mm. you know, like any other young woman, Mm. you know, negotiating the, you know, the travails of dating in late capitalism <laughs> and all of that. Um, you exactly. just met my yeah. wife very briefly uh, upstairs. She's America. She's absolutely already sick to death. Of, every, everybody she speaks to says, why are you here? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I I used to call it Brit-splaining, that people would meet me and sort of, you know, try and be like, do you understand about how to cross the road? Or like, let me tell you about the BBC and its function. And I'd be like, actually, I've lived here for a decade and I'm a British citizen. But because my accent never changed, you know, on first meeting, people would just assume that I had recently arrived. And then, yeah, absolutely, people would always say, like, why are you here? And I think that's kind of probably a universal experience of immigrants. And, you know, again, I'll note that, like, as immigration goes, I had a, a very privileged experience of like, I never had to get a visa. You know, I'm white. I speak English as my native language. So I certainly faced a lot less discrimination than many immigrants do in the UK or in the US. But nonetheless, you know, people would say, why are you here? I had more than one job interview where people told me to go home, (laughs) which was pretty astonishing to me. And it was strange having to kind of constantly justify my existence in that way. But I think for folks who haven't left the country of their birth, sometimes it's just hard to imagine why someone would. And so you're in London for mm. about a decade and then mm. get fed up with London as everybody does. <laughs> and you spend some time. Tired of life, right? <laughs> spend some time in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And then after your father's diagnosis, you move back to Brooklyn. So tell me about mm. moving back there after not being. And, uh, you know, not growing up in America, basically. That was pretty extraordinary. So basically what happened was I was offered a job in Berlin in 2012. And I had sort of I had reached a point where I was feeling, I think, burnt out on London, which I think a lot of people experience, not just on London or any other city, but probably just like if you've you know lived that section of your life and you haven't landed with a partner or a home or anything too permanent, then then it's kind of your early 30s is the time to think like, oh, maybe I should shake it up. So I moved to Berlin for a year and a half and um, was working for a tech company there and having a great time. But then my father's illness really was, um, you know, he was obviously deteriorating. And my parents were living in Baltimore by then. And I discussed it with my siblings and felt like one of us should be there to like offer a bit more support. And of my siblings, I was the only one who wasn't married and I didn't have kids and I, you know, didn't own a house, like any of those things. And I was like, well, I'm the obvious person to go. And so I decided to go and I was very lucky that my company sponsored me to like, you know, they sort of allowed me to move to the New York City office. 
But I was certainly, I wasn't excited to go. Like, I wasn't happy about it. It was the first time that, whereas when I left London, it was very willingly. It was the first time I'd had to leave somewhere where I just, I really didn't feel ready. So yeah, I arrived in Brooklyn in sort of late December of 2013. And then very sadly, my dad actually died six weeks later, which was a bit of a surprise. But that's the thing with like late stage cancer is I think we have... I remember thinking when he died, basically his heart just kind of exploded, which I think was just because of this general strain that the cancer was putting on all the systems of his body. And so he just dropped dead one day, having literally having gone to work earlier that day. So he was, I mean, he was very ill, but he was still trying to continue to live as normally as possible. And my mother was really supporting him, you know, his care in order to facilitate that. So he died what felt very sudden. And I remember thinking of the many things I thought like, oh, we've been robbed of what I'd envisioned we would have, which was, you know, sort of all of us sitting around like holding his hand or whatever, because that's what you see in films. But the reality with cancer is that, you know, you just don't know how it's going to how it's going to go. So that was six weeks after I moved back. And then people said to me, well, are you going to go back to Berlin? Because like the whole reason you're here is gone. And I said, no, like I've made this decision. So I'm just going to try and move forward with it. Um, So then I had this sort of mixture of like intense grief and the need to try and build a life in a city that I did feel quite foreign in. And it was sort of now the opposite of Britsplaining, which is nobody knew that I hadn't been there the whole time simply because my accent never changed. And so I would find myself announcing to people unnecessarily like, well, until recently I lived in Europe. (laughs) So like in a coffee shop, you know, they would say like, oh, what size do you want? And I would, you know, and obviously all the sizes seemed enormous compared to what I was used to. And then I would be like, oh, I don't know. I just, I used to live in Europe. And they'd be like, we don't care. Like what coffee do you want? <laughs> Another thing that was quite funny is in, in Germany. So my surname Edelstein is pronounced Edelstein in German because it's actually a German word that means basically diamond. And so in Germany, this is considered to be a very special name. And I often received like, you know, people would meet me and they'd be like, oh, Edelstein, it's such a beautiful name. And so then I got back to New York and I like continued to pronounce it that way for a little while until I realized that like no one was impressed and I just sounded really pretentious. So I had to stop. But yeah, it was definitely an adjustment process. Things like work, like I was mostly used to working in the UK. And so I was like very accustomed to like London, the way that offices were run in London or teams work together in London, that kind of thing. The way that everyone went out in the lash together on Fridays. <laughs> um, that, you know, whereas in New York, people sort of work crazy long hours a lot of the time. There's a lot more of that kind of, I would say, British people at work tend to be more self-deprecating, whereas in the U.S. they're very self-promoting. So things like that I had to get used to. And again, I just felt foreign, but then nobody knew that why I felt foreign or knew that, you know, where I'd come from. And so that was always kind of like a balancing act. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jean Hannah Edelstein. We're talking about her memoir, This Really Isn't About You. And Jean, in the first half, we sort of finished off talking about Lynch syndrome with you reluctant to get this test. Mm-hmm. But of course, you can't put it off forever. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when I got back to the States, my father was very keen for me to get tested. We had a few conversations about it. And I I had made the decision that I, when it was clear that like his time was very limited, I had made the decision not to get tested because I didn't want to tell him that I had it when he was weeks away from death from cancer. In retrospect, I don't know. I think, so, you know, I could have gotten the test and then he would have at least known that I knew, but I just wasn't convinced that that was the the best decision for him. And I, I even thought about getting the test and then lying to him and telling him that I, I didn't have it regardless of what the outcome was. But then I thought, but then I'll have to tell my mother the truth if that's the case. So anyway, I put it off. He died in February. I finally went to get the test in September. And indeed, I, I do have Lynch syndrome. So that was really shocking. And, a you know, a real, I think it comes through in the book, like, it's absolutely a turning point in my life that up until then I'd lived with this incredible freedom to just kind of like follow my whims. Like, as I said, I was a little bit formless in some of the decisions that I made in terms of my career relationships, even where I lived. And I didn't realize just how free I was until I had this diagnosis that basically says, you know, you are likely to die from cancer. I'm very healthy. I mean, the good thing is that like so far I haven't had any issues and actually having the diagnosis on balance is much better because it means that I now am in a, you know, a screening protocol where my life is heavily medicalized, which is weird because I'm healthy. But so about twice a year I go and I have a whole barrage of tests to look for various signs of early signs of cancer and touch wood so far I've been fine and I think one of the doctors said to me look you're much more likely to get certain kinds of cancer but you're actually much more likely to recover from it partly because actually a weird thing about people with Lynch is that although we do get cancer much more easily our bodies are also kind of better at fighting it so it is a very fascinatingly an odd condition but also because I get all these tests and so there's you know some of the forms of cancer that I'm at risk for people just would have no idea until they start having symptoms and that means they're actually quite far along yeah and that's when they would find out that they have the exactly Lynch syndrome, yeah. and that's very true I mean one so Lynch is not actually that uncommon it turns out it's I think it's like one in 400 people or even more than that have it but only five percent of people apparently find out that they 
they have it before they get cancer. So actually, if I'm going to a doctor about something unrelated and I, you know, they see Lynch in my medical history, then they ask me if, if I've had colon cancer because that's what it would usually indicate. And when I say no, I just know that I had this test. Doctors are still, even in New York where, you know, they probably tend to be a bit better educated about this kind of thing than in some places. Doctors are still surprised often. One of the forms of cancer that typically affects women with Lynch syndrome is ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And indeed, you're counseled on this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was something that was very hard to hear. So after I um, broke up with the boyfriend who I moved to London with, I was really single for a very long time. I had one other relationship for about a year in the course of 10 years. And so, yeah, by the time I got to New York, I'd been single for maybe three years or something like that at that point. And I, you know, I knew that in principle, I wanted to have a family. I was hopeful that I would meet a partner, but it was all kind of, I was, I guess, 33 when I got the diagnosis. And I still, you know, although I think many women are kind of conscious when they're in their early 30s, like, oh, you don't have forever. In my family, several women had had children when they were in their late 30s and even their early 40s. And so up until then, I hadn't been, you know, I sort of managed to allay that panic. So then I found myself with Lynch syndrome, um, meeting with a genetic um, counselor who basically said, like, you probably should have a total hysterectomy, like now. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and as I say in the book, like, I said something like, you know, actually, I, I bet I want to have children. And also, I don't have a partner. And then everyone in the room was just like silent. And I was like, well, this is really sad. <laughs> um, and it was strange to have to I mean, I had probably never articulated that before. And it was very strange to have to articulate that to like two strangers. So the good news is that I now have a gynecologist who specializes in oncology. And she's been very supportive in terms of helping me to optimize screening so that I can postpone having hysterectomy until probably until I'm in my early 40s. And then the other thing that they said to me at that time was, oh, well, if you want to have children, then you can you can do IVF because through IVF, they can eliminate the gene. And again, I was just my first thought was like, well, good thing my parents didn't have that option in the 80s because they literally would have eliminated the gene. But I had never thought about IVF because, again, I had never tried to get pregnant. Like, I vaguely knew what it was, but I just had, you know, I had never thought it was something that would I would use. Um, and so that was that was a heck of a lot to take. <laughs> well, I was going to say, when this, when the book ends... That's the position that you're in. You're still single. Mm -hmm. um, you've been told this, you know, you've got to keep an eye on your fertility, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. You know, these these are your options. And the book sort of ends sort of philosophically with you looking to the future yeah. and sort of mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. what will be will be, I guess. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, now, again, having now said how the book ends, mm -hmm. I guess it's not really much of a spoiler to say no. that, you know, you write a column for the for the Guardian Correct. called My IVF Live. <laughs> and indeed, although it's not actually particularly showing that you, you, soon you're going to be a walking spoiler. Yeah, I'm pregnant. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think the book is not about suspense, really. Like the most suspenseful question is like, does she have Lynch syndrome? And I reveal that essentially in the first of the book. Like, yes, I do. The book wouldn't exist in the form that it does. So, yeah, it was actually important to me. So by the, the book ends about six months before I met my husband. And my editor did say to me, like, oh, are you going to, like, you know, finish the book with, like, you meeting Eric and getting married? And I was like, absolutely not, because it was very important to me that this book is kind of about, 
you know, living a life where things are not resolved and then getting on with it anyway. And at the stage that the book ends, so my mother, after my dad died about a year later, said, okay, I'm going to move back to Scotland. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I literally just came back here for you. But it actually really made sense because although she lived in the U.S. for, I think, 35 years, she was not someone, she had immigrated because my father's career required it, not because she was some, she hadn't spent her life going, I wish I could live in America. She was very happy in Scotland. And she was, I think, 33 when she moved. So she had had a full adult life in the country she was from before she moved. And so she was, you know, it was basically her kids were grown up. And the reason that she'd moved to the U.S., my dad was like no longer there. Um, so she was ready to go home. And so the last section of the book is partly about me coming to terms with the diagnosis and a, in large part about her making the move back and how that felt. And so there was something kind of conclusive about that, which was if I move back to the U.S. to support my parents through that experience, that taking my mom to the airport to get her flight home was that was kind of the closure there. And then the question was like, well, why am I still here? Like, what am I going to do? I just have to get on with it. And so it was important. I think when I was thinking about who am I writing the book for, I think other people who have found themselves in these situations that aren't really about them because they don't have control over them, but these things happen. And then you just have to say, okay, like, you know, what's next? And so I feel like in terms of like finding a resolution The resolution I found at that stage was accepting that I don't have that much control. So I'm just going to like take the resources that I have and keep moving forward in life. And then I think it was because I found that, you know, slightly ambiguous resolution that six months later when I met my husband, we very quickly recognized that, you know, we just wanted to be together. And so we got married a year later after we met. And then um, at that stage, I was very fortunate. So in the U.S., you generally have to pay for IVF privately, but I had health insurance through my job that covered it. And so we started the IVF process then. You mentioned the um, the possibility as part of the IVF treatment to do genetic testing. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's not something that your healthcare will cover. No. So in my case, I mean, as far as we know, because we've never tried to get pregnant without IVF. But as far, you know, tests that we've had would indicate that we don't we wouldn't have an issue. So we specifically needed to do it for the genetic testing. However, I mean, and this is just like how evil health insurance is that basically they did an assess like a risk assessment where they decided that so Lynch syndrome, I mean, it increases your chances of certain kinds of cancer up to like 80 percent. I mean, it's really very high, but it's very rare for children to get cancer because of Lynch syndrome. So the health insurance calculation is the chance that they would have to pay for cancer treatment for a child with Lynch is very low. And so they will save more money by not paying for the genetic testing. So if we had a gene that would cause a childhood illness, then they would pay for that genetic testing. And when we got that in a letter, I was just like, this is dark. <laughs> like, who are the people who are doing this math, basically? Yeah, and if your child was going to get it, they'll be an adult by the time they get well, it, so it, therefore they'll have to pay for it themselves. Exactly, they'll have to pay for it themselves. And I was just, I mean, yeah, I mean, health insurance in the U.S. is, as every, you know, I'm sure many listeners know, it's just, like, really a really a dark place. So, so yeah, we did have to pay, I think, around just over $10,000 for the genetic testing. So we did, we didn't have a wedding, for example, because, like, Um, And so my mom gave us some money that she probably would have, you know, she would have contributed to us having a wedding. We had just eloped. And then 
my husband's father also contributed something. My husband also lost his mom to cancer around the same time my dad died. So we had that in common. I think that was part of what sort of bonded us initially. And, you know, we were able to use savings. And I mean, so comparatively, we are so fortunate because so much of it was covered by health insurance, but that still left us with about, I think, I think it was about $11,000 that we had to come up with ourselves in order to purchase a child. <laughs> So I've been talking to Jean Hannah Edelstein. We've been talking about her memoir, This Really Isn't About You. Jean, thank you so much for sharing it thank with us. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.